Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the 63rd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning to you, Matt. I'm a big fan of your socks this morning. Popcorn. Thanks, buddy. I always have fun socks. You do. Got to switch it up some way. Yeah. Do you, speaking of that, do you think movies are ever going to come back or is that a thing of the past? You know, it was movie funny. Theaters? Last night, Rachel and I went out on date night. We ate at a restaurant right across from a movie theater. Condado, right? Condado. How was it? It was really good. Good. I, think I mean, go it has a lot of hype. Day. Yeah. And I would say it lived up to it, at least for me in my first visit. Yeah. But man, I looked and I wasn't like watching across the way constantly, but I didn't see one person walk in that place. Yeah. I feel like I'm not a huge proponent of all the, you know, the thumpers saying that these industries are dying because of COVID, but that's one that I might be able to get on board with. I don't know if people are going to do that anymore just with what you can get on your own TV now. That's right. And I think it's just accelerating the process. And I have one in e-commerce here in a little bit on tweets and research that's going to just prove that a lot of these trends markers getting pulled forward. Right. 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 So we'll get into that here in a little bit, but we'll take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on September 15th. S&P 500 index is down 2.78% for the month and up 5.44% for the year. The Dow down 1.56% for the month and down 1.76% for the year. The NASDAQ down 6.1% for the month and up 23.23% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 1.32% for the month and up seven, or excuse me, down 7.42% for the year. Vanguard International Exchange Traded Fund X United States is up 0.9% for the month and down 3.11% for the year. Uh, the two-year Treasury currently, or excuse me, the three-month T-bill currently yielding 0.11%. The two-year Treasury sitting at uh, 0.14%, and the 10-year Treasury yield sitting at 0.68%. Um, so big news and headlines uh, from the past week, not much um, other than COVID cases continue to trend lower. Congress is still in disagreement on a skinny stimulus package. Um, U.S.-China tensions kind of continue uh, behind the scenes a little bit. Hasn't made uh, too much uh, newsworthy headlines, but um, there's some differences in visa approval going forward for diplomats and journalists. So we'll continue to keep our eye on that. And as we mentioned last week, the technology sector, which has been the best performing S&P 500 index sector, year to date has struggled so far here in September. Um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. You want to give this one a go, Matt? Yeah. <clears throat> okay, listeners, I got a lot of good stuff this week. The first one I have is from uh, Asfar. He's a Salesforce uh, executive, and he posted a tweet on September 12th. And he said, and I quote, important 2020 lesson, every company must be a digital company. And then Mark, what he did is he attached this chart from Bank of America showing U.S. e-commerce as a percentage of sales. 
uh, in the U.S. And this is amazing. It shows kind of this trend. And prior to COVID, it was around like a little bit above 15%, as you can see by the chart. Mm-hmm. And this will be in our show notes, too, on jessupwealthmanagement.com. Hover over the podcast uh, tab and click on the show notes, and you can see this. Absolutely. So what you're going to see is in three months, it has jumped all the way from penetration of about, let's call it 16% from this chart, all the way to almost 35%. And his chart is indicating that's 10 years worth of uh, growth um, if it stayed in a linear fashion. Now, you and I probably know it would go up more exponentially, Mm -hmm. but still it just does really show that this trend of online sales and online delivery has really been pulled forward. Mm-hmm. Do you have any comments you want to say? I mean, do you think that this is temporary, Mark? you think the, the market share is going to fall back? What's your thoughts? No, I just, you know, I, I think it just shows that even during times of stress and during bad times in our economy, the consumer is still going to spend one way or another. They're going to, they're going to spend, they're going to find that's a way just, to do it. That's just in our nature as Americans. It's just, we're a consumption based economy and they're going to find a way to spend money still. So I think that, you know, this trend is going to continue. I think when we get back to a more normal environment or we have a vaccine, you'll still see people start to go to malls more and local retail shops more and that type of thing. But I think that, you know, a lot of these big companies are making it so easy to buy things online just from your couch at home that a lot of people aren't going to really want to go out to the stores. Good point. Um, so that's just my opinion. I definitely think it's going to continue. I think when things open up, it'll drop back a little bit. But I think the growth, you know, is going to continue to rise over the next decade for sure. Yeah, I agree. Just a, a kind of a mind blowing chart when you look at the jump, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, next piece I have, listeners, is from Bespoke. They do really good work of, of raw research looking at um, um, a lot of things there. They had a comment, though, in regards to the top S&P 500 index holdings as of the market close on September 11th. So, Mark, I'll get into this. It says, the fortunes of the S&P 500 will be largely contingent on the performance of the Fab Five, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Facebook, given their weightings in the index of more than 20%. This is what they said. The last time there was such a high concentration in the market among the largest stocks was in 2000. But the key difference now and then is valuations. Um, Immediately, comparisons to most overvalued market in decades aren't particularly good housekeeping seal of approval, but one silver lining is that the largest five stocks on the S&P aren't anywhere near as richly valued on a PE basis as the five largest stocks were in 2000. And based upon other metrics like growth, margins, and cash flow, they look even more reasonably valued, end quote. Mm-hmm. Any comments you want to throw out there? Well, I think it is different than in 2000 because, I mean, valuations aside, financial metrics aside, just forget about that for a second. Pretty much everyone uses Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and Facebook in one way or another, right? Excellent point. And back in 2000, people didn't even know what these high-flying tech stocks were. They were just buying it because they were on a rage, right? And because everyone was talking about it. This is different. These companies are an essential part of the U.S. economy right now. 
And I think that's the key difference. And the people that are complaining about how they're too big of part of the index is because they're not invested in them. That's why they're complaining about it. And if you don't want to, you know, put the thinking into it, then buy an index fund that has exposures to them. I love it. You know, I absolutely so agree. I think that's the major difference. You don't have to. You and know, the balance sheets are completely different. Yeah, it's not rocket science. It's just these these companies are so intertwined with the U.S. economy right now, and that's completely different than it was in 2000. And the balance sheets are completely different. Yes. So it's just I thought I'd throw that out there. I thought it was a good kind of summary, kind of bringing that back. If that mm -hmm. makes sense. All right, listeners. Next, the next topic I want to throw out there. I have a two more. Um, what is a SPAC? S P A C. Now, you usually see this, um, you know, Wall Street Journal, you know, Bloomberg, CNBC. You're starting to see this term SPAC. And I thought what we would do, Mark, is we would explain what that means. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there was an article in Crunchbase about this. And just for people, it stands for uh, Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Thank you. So uh, this market, uh, it's a relatively new investment trend it's starting to hit mainstream news. So SPACs are essentially blank check companies this is just if if i this just sounds nuts as i start to say this mm -hmm. i'll just continue yeah essentially a blank check company spac founders form the company and go out and raise yeah just a few hundred million dollars through an IPO with the intent of buying another company with the money they have raised virgin galactic DraftKings, um nicola motor all went public through a spac meaning they were acquired by a blank check company uh, former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, not sure of his investment acumen, but I'm mm. not here to judge. And LinkedIn co-founder Reid Hoffman have all launched these blank check companies. This has been a record year for SPACs, according to SPAC Insider. I didn't even know there was a such a thing as SPAC Insider. With nearly $36.2 in SPAC gross proceeds so far. That's far higher than the $13.6 billion in gross proceeds in 2019 and $2.8 billion in 2018. So, Mark, my message to investors here is to be very careful with these types of investments. Really spend time understanding their risks just because one does well does not mean another will. And do you have any other words of wisdom you want to throw out there regarding these specs? No, I do. I, th I think it's interesting. I mean, it's an interesting um, process because you have these companies, like you mentioned, that like Virgin Galactic, DraftKings, Nikola. Um, you know, they don't want to go through the typical, you know, underwriting process and regular IPO process because it's just you know the regulations are crazy and it costs a lot of money to do so so they'd rather you know go through the route of just being acquired by one of these you know special purpose acquisition vehicles so i just think it's you know it's an interesting here here's my issue with it you in essence are don't have a style or what they're going to do with this money you're just purely trusting the leadership of this spac to make a good decision mm -hmm. um blindly in essence yeah but isn't that, I guess, uh, just to play devil's advocate, isn't that the same in trusting an investment manager to make I good decisions? I think you generally know uh, how they're investing, what your risk tolerance is, what your time horizon is. Mm -hmm. I mean, they could probably hold that money in that SPAC for multiple years and not doing anything. Right. right. I just think it's, it's a, it's a, there's so many unknowns, relatively speaking. Right. 
that, that that's the. So angle. you're talking about investing in the SPAC before they go out and acquire like one of these companies. Yes. Per se. Okay. Yes. Yeah. In okay, essence, that you're, you're like the angel money right. going into the blank check company. Right. Yeah. I just I think that's an aggressive proposition. Mm-hmm. Not really understanding. I mean, they could end up taking a consumer goods company public, right? Rather than a high flying tech that might have more inherent risk. Mm-hmm. That's I guess that's the angle I'm coming at. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it's definitely something we'll keep an eye on going forward to see if this is something that catches traction or if it's just, uh, you know, uh, a fad for right now. Yep. Last thing I got, Mark, for listeners, just a couple stats that caught my eye this week. Uh, first one uh, was from Bespoke, uh, market close report, September 11th. The NASDAQ 100 has closed above its 50-day moving average for a remarkable streak of 105 closes before dipping below the 50-day just this past week. This is the 10th longest streak on record. That's pretty bullish, Mark. The average forward-looking return for the NASDAQ 100 the other nine times the next six months, a little bit over 7%, Mm -hmm. 7.07. Another bullish statistic for you. And then according to Bloomberg on September 12th, there's a Japanese billionaire, and I will murder his name. You want to give it a swing? Yusaku Mezawa. All right. You would done, you've done drastically better than I would have um, shared on Twitter that he lost forty one million dollars attempting to day trade stocks recently. He was quoted saying, I was blinded by the virus driven market swings. It lost four point four billion yen through repeated short term trading of stocks, something I haven't familiarized myself with, end quote. Yeah, that's a tough pill to swallow. <laughs> 41, <laughs> 41 million dollars. That's really tough. Wow. Uh back to you, my friend. Yeah, yeah. And I'll and there's something that I bring up later that kind of gets into that as well by just trading short term and stuff, but I'll uh wait until I get to that. Um Yeah, talk about losses hurting more than gains, especially with that type of money. Oh my gosh. Wow. You think uh, Japan has carryover losses? <laughs> uh, I would venture to guess no. <laughs> but, but I'm not familiar with Japanese law. <laughs> I'm sorry. So Maybe you list- can dig that up and bring that up. I bet a li- you know a listener's going to email us now that they heard and, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so listeners, in the U.S., you have the ability to, to uh, carry over your losses, your realized losses. You can uh, take on your taxes up to a $3,000 loss per year, then you carry the rest over. Right. Yeah. To deduct off your income or you can use those losses to offset Offset gains gains. in the future. Yeah. Yeah. In the future. Okay. um, My two things. The first article uh, was by Michael Batnick and it was titled, uh, Will Money Printing Cause Inflation? And this is on his blog, The Irrelevant Investor. Ooh, this is going to be interesting. This is really, really interesting because it... I think it goes against everyone's traditional thinking or what people learn in school. So um, I just wanted to to highlight a few points that he made. So um, he references Stephanie Kelton's book called The Deficit Myth. And Kelton, he says, argues that not only are increasing deficits the wrong boogeyman, but it's the opposite that should keep us up at night. The periods of history when we paid down our debt 
coincided with some of the worst economic regimes our country has ever experienced. Not surprised. So everyone's pounding the table to, you know, to pay down this crazy debt that the government has. But typically when they've done that in the past, they haven't been great times for the U.S. consumer or the U.S. economy. So he goes on to say that Kelton shared a table from Professor Frederick Thaler, who in 1996 wrote, the U.S. has experienced six significant economic depressions. Each was uh, preceded by a sustained period of budget balancing. And in this article, which I've also attached to the show notes for this episode, um, Michael attaches a picture of this table um, that Kelton shared in her book. And it outlines the years when the U.S. debt is paid down, the percent decline in debt, and the year a depression began. So in 1817 to 1821, the U.S. paid down debt. Uh, the percent decline in debt was 29%, and the year de- the depression began was in 1819. In 1823 to 1836, the U.S. paid down debt. They paid down 100% of the debt. And then the following year in 1837, we experienced a depression. And there are several more instances of this, but the most recent one um, that it shows in this table is 1920 to 1930, the U.S. paid down debt uh, by 36%. And then, of course, 1929, one of the worst depressions that we've had. That's right. So I think people need to be careful with what they wish for uh, in terms of pounding the table on how, you know, U.S. government borrowing is going to spiral out of control. But just looking back at this table, it looks like, you know, some of the most severe economic depressions that we've had is when the U.S. government does try to budget the or um, balance the budget. You know, my response as you're as you're talking and going through this uh, during one of our investment committee meetings recently for our practice, you know, I brought up the point in regards to Japan looking back several decades and when they were on their spending binge, you know, um, monetizing their debt per se, they were just issuing and printing so much money. What did everyone originally think was going to happen when they did that? Crazy inflation, crazy inflation. And what's happened since then? Deflation, deflation. (laughs) So I think it is also a misconception that just because the Fed is doing this, that it's going to lead to inflation. Mm -hmm. Because how many people have you seen on TV talk about what I just mentioned? No one. No one yet. And where I think this is leading is it's a very plausible outcome that all this printing does not lead to inflation. It actually leads to deflation. Yeah. And just like I said in the investment committee meeting, what are the areas that historically have not done well in a deflationary environment? Slow growth stocks, i.e. value, tend to not do well in a deflationary environment. Hard assets like gold tend to not do well historically in a deflationary environment. Real estate, if it's going to get cheaper, why buy now, right? And what historically has done well in a deflationary environment? Growth stocks. Mm -hmm. So just look at the way the market's trading right now. It's signaling to me right now that I should not be concerned about inflation. 
so right. far. Would you agree or disagree? Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think that, you know, you, you see every, and, and to add to that, you know, on the contrarian perspective, everyone's pounding the table saying that this stimulus that we're providing right now is going to lead to unbelievable inflation within the next decade. And is it a plausible? It's plausible. Yeah. It could happen. Mm-hmm. But I would say that that thought process is extremely crowded. Yeah. It's not a shoe in. It's no happen. one's even like bringing up the fact that it could be the opposite, just like you and I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. I just it's perplexing. Yeah. And going back to the article, I don't disagree with their point that when that government pulls back on that spending, it trickles all the way down through the economy. So when I have a hard time when someone says that to a certain extent, trickle down economics don't work. I disagree with that statement. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my pieces of proof about that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. And to wrap wrap it up on this article, uh, Michael finishes with, if we've learned anything since the government's response to the last crisis, it's quantitative easing or money printing or whatever you want to call it, does not necessarily plant the seed for higher prices in the future. If you have any faith in how markets work, then look to our borrowing costs as a clue. If investors were really worried about the size of the federal deficit, then the cost for funding it wouldn't be at a record low. So I thought that was good. Yeah, yeah good, good, good article there. Um, so moving on to the financial planning topic of the week. This one comes from a blog post written by Josh Brown on his blog, The Reform Broker. Downtown Josh Brown. Yep. And it's titled An Endless Uh, An Endless Responsibility. So I thought this was a really good post that details what several people go through on a day-to-day basis when it relates to their investment portfolio. And I know that people do because I've had conversations with friends, family, and clients that think this way as well. So he starts by saying this, here's here's part of your responsibility. You cannot continually change your views about investments based on what the markets have just done today. Cannot. You will chop your portfolio into pretzel-sized nuggets and then into crumbs and salt crystals. You cannot consistently sell down 4% and then buy back plus 10% when it feels better. You cannot allow today's prices to dictate your feelings about tomorrow's returns. So I agree with Josh that this is just a recipe for disaster. And, you know, going back to your point about the guy that lost $41 $41 million or whatever the figure was, people try to play this game of jumping in and jumping out on a short-term basis. And for a lot of people, it just doesn't work. Absolutely. I mean, the way that I like to talk about it is those periods of market corrections like we saw in early September is the market moving the shares from the weak hands to the strong hands. Mm-hmm. And when your time horizon is that short, uh, sometimes these people are utilizing leverage, i.e. margin. It tends to not really work out when you're with with what I just mentioned. Yeah. And I think for the majority of people who don't do this for a living, that is often overlooked that their savings rate really matters more than the investment performance that they're so focused on. Going back to, you know, March, you know, when you were talking, um, you know, to, to the listeners about focus on what you can control. Right. Right. And that's one thing that you can control. You can control that. Yep. Um, So another uh, piece from this article, he says, and if you're paying attention to commentators who are overly focused on the action of each day, you're poisoning yourself because every day is a new day, barely connected with whatever happened the day before. 
You look at the S&P 500 right now, down 5%. And again, this was from uh, September 10th, from its recent record high. And you're tempted to think that we're halfway there to a 10% correction or a quarter of the way there toward a 20% bear market. But corrections don't happen with any great frequency and bear markets are so rare that I can list every single one of them off the top of my head going back to the 1950s and I wasn't even alive yet. So again, most of the time, over a long time horizon, the market goes up. And you can see that by just plotting the S&P 500 on a chart, right? Yeah, and you know when he was, you know, when you were reading that, when he talked about you know, the changes of the actual underlying company from yesterday to today, right? And he's talking about then how there's fluctuations in that share price. To me, that gets me excited as an active manager, because there's always going to be, in our opinion, dislocations of value. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it helps us. We're longer term investors. We're not worried about X, Y, Z and how they perform next week. Mm -hmm. That's not the goal for us. No. And so I think the longer you push out that time horizon, I think there's historically and factually higher probability of success when you're planning mm -hmm. and when you have those longer term goals. But if your goal is to see where that's going to be one week or two weeks from now, that is not a game I would recommend. No, no, me neither. Um, he also says today the market will go up or down and your brain's chemistry will lead you to believe that this is meaningful. And that it's likely to go higher or lower. You have to knock that expletive off. It's your responsibility. It's an endless responsibility. So he lists three tricks for dealing with this. This will be good. Number one is stop paying attention. Turn off all the notifications and headlines. Delete the apps. And this causes people to make extreme emotional decisions rather than just following your plan. So if I were a betting man, Matt. I bet investor behavior would be substantially better without all of the news and apps right at our fingertips on our phones every single day. Agreed. It's almost as if there's so much information out there that people are either paralyzed or they're overactive with their trading. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to, you know, an example we worked with a client one time or we heard us. I think I was talking to another advisor, actually, and he had worked with a client one time that uh, hadn't looked at his 401k and just contributed every week. And he had a, you know, a stock buying program. And um, by the time he retired, he had something like a couple million dollars in his company's stock. And he was getting a check every couple of months for, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And he was confused as to why he was getting these checks and it was the dividend payment. <laughs> so it just goes to show you that again, your savings rate, I think matters so much more that you consistently just save, you know, rather than worrying about what you're, what the market's doing on any given day, you know, I would agree. You know, agree, you know, try find a trusted advisor. If you're not, if you're not doing, if you're not, you know, coming up with this plan yourself and executing it, but ultimately, <clears throat> being hyper-focused and, and over-trading tends to not lead to good outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And you're getting ahead of me already. So number two is hire someone else to worry about it for you. They're a step removed from the emotions um, you've, excuse me, they're a step removed from the emotions you've got intertwined with your life savings. So I would argue that money is probably the most emotional thing that people get up in arms about, right? Yeah. 
Um, we're part money managers and traders. We're part psychologists. Right, exactly. And I'm not just agreeing with this because I do this for a living. The emotional aspect of money is so powerful that I think it causes people to act irrationally. And having a professional assist with this takes the emotion out of it. And if you don't want to hire someone, at least have like an investment buddy, right? That can hold hold you accountable before letting your emotions get the best of you. That's a good one. Yeah. So even if you don't want to hire someone or, or spend the money to do it, then at least get someone and let them know what your plan is so they can, you know, when you want to make a rash decision, you have to run it by them first. Like it to hold you accountable. I like it. And the third, he said, is read books about market history instead of news articles about market present. Most of the stuff you read in the Wall Street Journal will not be remembered in the future, will not be read about in the books about market history even a decade from now. It's almost all water under the bridge. I'll run number three there. Yep, exactly. So I thought it was a good article just because, you know, there are articles out there every day about day trading now and you know just the environment we're in and instant gratification and people having more time on their hands right now just thought it was timely to mention that last point i want to make you're always going to hear in the news about the few people that hit it out of the park Mm -hmm. made all these investment decisions they had limited experience prior made hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars just realize just like uh, the people that hit it big on the slots at the casino those are few and far between when you look at the greater numbers. Right, right. Uh, we have a question this week, Matt. Boom, let's so, do it. So question from Dennis. Um, so Dennis asks, I will be eligible for Medicare in June. I currently contribute to a health savings account, and I understand that while on Medicare, I cannot contribute to a health savings account. Should I stop contributing a certain number of months prior to being eligible for Medicare, or is it permissible to contribute all the way up until May. So I'll start with this and then you can fill in the blanks if you want. Got it. So when you enroll in Medicare, uh, part A or B, for people that don't know, you can no longer contribute to an HSA anymore. And the reason is that to be an, in order to contribute to an HSA, you have to be covered under a high deductible health plan. Okay. So that's the only way you can contribute to a health savings account. But until you're covered under Medicare, you are able to continue to contribute to your HSA until the month your Medicare kicks in. So once you're no longer eligible to contribute to the HSA, you're covered under Medicare. So say, Dennis, that Medicare kicks in for you in May, the last month you can contribute to the HSA is in June, right? So um, you can still take money from the HSA to help cover medical expenses. That's not a problem. It's just the contribution you can no longer contribute to. The one stipulation that I will mention is that if you are in the camp that you delay Medicare coverage to be covered under your high deductible health plan, you can still contribute to your HSA. But once you opt to, to get on Medicare, Medicare retroactively looks back six months and covers you for the prior six months. Ah. So if you're going to take Medicare or delayed Medicare, you have to stop contributing to your HSA six months prior to when you start Medicare if you delay Medicare coverage. That's a lot, but that's just the way the the law reads right now. Got it. So so to answer your, your question head on, Dennis. 
You can contribute all the way up until June if uh, you're just being eligible for Medicare and you're not delaying it. However, if you're going to delay Medicare coverage, then you have to consider um, that six-month retroactive period that Medicare will cover and you can't contribute to your HSA during those periods. Yeah, to be to be direct, I was not aware of that. So mm-hmm. I learned something new today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So thank you for the, the question there, Dennis. Um, I think that's everything I had, Matt. Is there anything else you want to... Uh, just two things. One, uh, we're going to be recording the podcast a little early next week on Tuesday. And secondly, uh, listeners, just be aware of the calendar and where we stand, meaning we are about... Um, two weeks away from the end of the quarter. And, you know, this was a quarter where, you know, technology names in general did well. And um, it wouldn't surprise me, in my opinion, if we had some window dressing going into the end of the quarter. And before we sign off, do you want to explain kind of what that means? Yeah. So all these large money managers or institutions want to show that they own certain names, all the sexy names that, that have did done well, well during the quarter. During the quarter. So what you'll see sometimes is kind of a melt up in these names because these guys are buying them because they want to show that they owned that name during the quarter at some point. So just because, you know, that mutual fund in your 401k says its top 10 holdings is, you know, whatever they are, doesn't necessarily mean listeners they held those the entire quarter. Sometimes they throw those into the top 10 mix at the end of the quarter to make it appear, well, I knew what I was doing, I, I held that name the whole quarter, mm-hmm. when in factuality, they could have bought it just the last day of the quarter. Right. So right. I just want to throw that out there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so we'll be back early next week to record episode number 64. So thank you for tuning into the 63rd episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a great rest of your week and an awesome weekend. Send those questions. We'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words, questions, and topics in the subject line to mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.